I notice how much more complicated life gets as one ages. You have to get the paper the right distance from. You have to have light and up light. You have to prop the knees up. You young ones enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> I remember when I used to just plop on a cushion. It's like, wow. If, 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 if there's one thing that, that can really teach us about gracefulness, it's aging. Really, um, there's so many opportunities to learn how to join with life as it is now. I mean, life is, there's always opportunities, right? But it's like the places that are challenging, that's the places we really get to learn from. That's where we really stretch the capacity of the heart and mind to um, be graceful in this world. And so we're going to move on today from talking about steadiness to talking about gracefulness, so the steady and graceful heart. And we started making that move with the instructions at 2 o'clock when, when I talked about moving towards pain and, and seeing what kind of relationship we can develop with it that is a relationship of gracefulness rather than struggle. So you could say the move in our practices from struggle to gracefulness or struggle to ease. Learning how to flow with this uh, universe that I described yesterday, this universe of, of continual change, this universe of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences arising and passing away constantly, much of it out of our control. That doesn't mean that we don't have some agency and that we do the best we can to make our lives as comfortable as possible and to have our, our goals in our life. But, for example, aging is not optional. <laughs> Unless you die young, it's not something we can control. Same with death, illness, the big, the big ones that the Buddha mentioned. But, um, you know, whether the chainsaw is going on outside, little things. There's the little things we can practice with that help us to prepare for, for the bigger challenges of life. So when we talk about gracefulness, um, we're talking about the mind and the heart that can meet life as it is. So it's, it, there's a kind of, we're moving into kind of unconditional acceptance or unconditional ease or unconditional connection. And when we were talking about steadiness, there, there was some conditionality to it. We were, we were working things in a certain way. We were um, kind of letting things go and finding that one anchor and coming back to it. Good for steadiness. Certain amount of exclusion, though. And when we move into talking about grace, we're talking about inclusion. Nothing gets left out. We turn towards everything that arises. And so this is our Vipassana practice, is studying um, the heart and mind's relationship or response to whatever's arising, to this changing world, changing life. And so we see the places that, um, that we resist the way things are. 
and then we soften into a relationship that is real and that offers us some peace with the way things are. So this graceful heart, the supremely graceful heart, is able to connect fully with reality because it doesn't have demands on reality. It doesn't have conditions about how things have to be for a connection to happen. So really, another way we could say it is we're practicing connecting moment after moment after moment, and we're seeing when we can't connect fully with the way things are, and then we stretch, can we? And what we find is that um, we have these defense strategies that we usually use to deal with this changing world. And the major defense strategies you will recognize as the three roots of suffering in Buddhism, grasping, aversion, and delusion. Those are our protections. That's how we protect our heart in this world. Grasping is the, is the wish, our desire, or craving to keep pleasant, or to bring pleasant. And aversion is the um, rejection of exile, of um, pushing away what's unpleasant. And delusion is all the strategies we have in our minds to avoid the truth. So these three roots of suffering are our usual ways of um, trying to find some peace in the world. So it's interesting that our usual ways of finding peace in the world are actually the ways that cause suffering. So what we're trying to learn is, is a different way to find peace in the world. I think I'll read a story. <laughs> this kind of explains um, how we usually uh, relate to the world in a different way. This is from um, Joseph Goldstein's, I think, his latest book, one of his books. In India, I was living in a little hut about six feet by seven feet. It had a canvas flap instead of a door. I was sitting on my bed meditating, and a cat wandered in and plopped down on my lap. I took the cat and tossed it out the door. Ten seconds later, it was back on my lap. We got in this sort of dance, this cat and I. I tossed it out because I was trying to meditate to get enlightened. But the cat kept returning. <laughs> What's your cat? <laughs> I was getting more and more irritated, more and more annoyed with the persistence of the cat. Finally, after about a half hour of this coming in and tossing out, I had to surrender. There was nothing else to do. There was no way to block the door. I sat there. The cat came back in, and it got on my lap. But I did not do anything. I just let go. 30 seconds later, the cat got up and walked out. <laughs> that kind of sums up our whole spiritual practice in some ways. We resist, we resist, we resist, and then we finally give up. And then that's when things move and shift. It'd be nice if we could give up earlier, but we don't seem to be able to. <laughs> we resist until we're done resisting. And we all have our cats. We all have the, 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 our, our challenges. 
that we just hope will go away. It reminds me, um, no, not yet. (laughs) So we learn, there's the gracefulness has this quality of surrender to it. Not resignation, that's different. Resignation has a sense of kind of hopelessness or something. Surrender as much um, is, is, has acceptance in it. So we learn how to surrender and then things move on their own. So gracefulness comes from learning this non-resistance to the way things are. So part of our practice is going to be understanding resistance or learning to investigate resistance. And how do we know resistance is there? Hardness, inflexibility. Hardness, inflexibility, and let me see my list here. I'm spacing out at the moment. Uh, Rigidity, agitation. Demands. Yeah. So we start to recognize um, when that happens. And at first we don't recognize it because it's so business as usual. You know, we don't even see it. So, but as we get deeper into practice, we start to see it more clearly. And then we start to see it more subtly. And then we bring awareness to that. And, and what happens? We, we explore that. So at first, the resistance might be really loud, like fury. (laughs) Fury is a form of resistance, right? People say, like some people say to me, well, before I practiced, I I wasn't angry, and now I'm angry. What is wrong with this practice? It's like, no, before you practiced, you you didn't know you were angry. (laughs) So we start to really get to understand resistance and have some kind of relationship with it that allows it to... um, begin to lose its power over us. It softens. We learn how to soften it through awareness, through kindness, not through trying to get rid of it, (laughs) which is where we think, oh, okay, i got to get rid of this hardness. i got to get rid of anger, fear, craving. No, we, we get interested. We meet it. familiarize ourselves. <laughs> it reminds me, so one form is this aversion, right? The hardness of aversion. But craving, craving and trying to keep what's pleasant has its own hardness. It's, it's not as um, obvious, right? Because it's kind of hidden in the pleasantness of what we want. But there's stress. Stress is another sign that we're resisting reality. Tension, stress. It reminds me of this um, uh, video that my friend Temple Smith posted on Facebook, and it and it had this little girl, and she was um, she was uh, her mom was talking to her, and she's saying to her mom, you know, I want waffles for dinner, and her mom's like, no, we can't have waffles for dinner. We had waffles for breakfast, and we had waffles for dinner last night, so. We're not having we're not having, we're not having waffles for dinner, and she was so upset. She's like, "But I want waffles for dinner." And then she's like, "I can't stop thinking about waffles." <laughs> and then she says, 
why can't I stop thinking about waffles? <laughs> and then my friend Temple writes underneath, I think she's about to have a breakthrough with craving. <laughs> but, but what was great was like, she's like, why can't I stop thinking about waffles? She's like, was like, almost like a four-year-old meditator, like trying to understand her mind. Like she's like, I can't stop thinking about waffles. So, so we get when when we start to get close to craving, we see that that's one of the ways craving is. It's like you can't stop thinking about what you want, right? That it gets very narrow, very narrow, because that's the nature of craving. See, so we we become interested in that. So if you're sitting here and you're wanting something, you know, keeps coming, you're wanting it. It's like, what's it like to get interested in that rather than to? either to think it's bad or to get lost in it. That's the other thing, right? And get lost in the belief that if you really had waffles, you would be happy. <laughs> That's the other thing about craving. It tells you that if you, it tells you that if you get the craved thing, you will be happy. That's its, its story. And if you don't get it, you'll die. <laughs> That's its story. If you really listen, so we start listening. It's like, oh, maybe... Maybe craving's just a mind state that arises, and if you wait long enough, it passes. I don't know, it might have taken her a while, but probably passed. <laughs> we, so we sit and we can watch like craving arise, and then we can watch it pass away. So we have to learn this relationship to the resistance to the way things are. The way things are is we're not having waffles for dinner. And so we have to learn how to to um, uh, have that gracefulness with, with that truth. So we're basically, we're learning to cooperate with reality. We're learning to have a kind of wholehearted cooperation with reality. That's what our practice is about. And so we investigate when we don't have a wholehearted um, cooperation with reality, and then we investigate when we do, how that feels also. Like, what does it feel like to really rest in the truth of the moment? It's quite um, relaxing. Often we notice it when we stop resisting, when we surrender. A few weeks ago I was teaching a class at um, a local college. A professor asked me to to teach at um, Smith and uh, Smith College. And so I was with these young women, um, super striver types. <laughs> and uh, so we did, they were great. We, we did just two short meditations. And the first meditation um, was kind of just a regular mindfulness meditation. And what was interesting is there was this truck outside the window making lots of noise. It was doing some kind of construction, very loud, right? And so I used it. I was like, okay, so um, hearing, we notice hearing. Is it unpleasant or pleasant, whatever? What's the relationship with it? Is there a way that we can include that sound in our reality of life right now rather than resist it, right? And, and it was great because one of the women afterwards, she'd done a lot of concentration practice. So she was used to the exclusion, exclusion type, right? She's like, she said, usually I would be meditating and that sound would bother me so much because I'd be trying to get rid of it. But I did what you said and I just 
open to hearing the sound and she said it was amazing. It didn't bother me. <laughs> she was like so, you know, excited that there was this option that you could open to what's unpleasant and just be with it. Cooperating with reality. She was cooperating with reality. She saw that in like a five-minute meditation. It was really quite beautiful. And then later we did a meditation around mindfulness of emotion. And um, at basic instructions, I'll give you them to, tomorrow morning. But another one of the young women afterwards, she goes, when you said to choose a mind state, well, I chose fatigue. And she said, you know, fatigue, I get fatigue at a certain time of the day, and I, and I really hate it. I, I, I have quite a lot of trouble with it. But you suggested that perhaps we could move towards it and get interested in it. She said, so I tried that. She said, I tried just letting it be. And um, she's like, it was okay. And then it shifted. She said, then I wasn't so tired. You know, so it's like she usually fought with reality, but she was exploring the alternative of turning towards what's happening with the intention, you can't control it, but with the intention to include, to accept the truth of the moment. And then she noticed that the, that the lack of stress of resisting the fatigue, actually, she wasn't as tired. It's stressful to resist reality. <laughs> wears us out. <laughs> really, that's like mostly what wears us out is resisting reality. So this is what we do. We, we're really looking at understanding our relationship to what's happening. That's, first, we have to get intimate with what's happening. We have to move towards it. But then we look at what's the relationship. Is it one of cooperation, of wholeheartedness with reality, or is it one of resistance to reality? And if it's resistance, what is our way in? What is the possibility of being with things as they are. First of all, we try commanding it. Does that work? No, that doesn't work. <laughs> like, okay, I'm going to accept this. <laughs> I was thinking one time when I'm in my um, community and we were talking about anger. Anger came up and my mom was like, asking me a question. She's like, well, I'm you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to accept the anger and, uh, and um, you know, I it's not. It's hard. And uh, what do you? What should I do? And I said, Well, it seems to me that you're not accepting the anger. It seems to me that you hate the anger. She's like, Well, yeah, I do. I said, Well, then hate it. Like that's your reality. So if that's our reality, is that we're hating what's happening? You can be with that. You can start exactly. That's the beauty. You don't have to make it any other way. You get to start right where you're at. So. A knee pain comes up, you hate the knee pain, what's it like to hate your knee pain? So we're not trying to say, oh, I have to accept my knee pain. We're like, no, what's really happening? What's really? And we explore that. And it, it's like with the cat. It shifts at some point. It does, it's grazed. You can't control when it shifts, but it does. So true, true gracefulness is okay with, that, with not being graceful. 
true gracefulness is okay with hating anger. So it's, it's, it's unconditional. And, and sometimes the problem for us meditators is that, we, is that we think we should be a certain way. And so we either try to fit ourselves into how we think we should be or we beat ourselves up because we're not the way we think we should be. I think we were talking a variation of that earlier. Um, you get to be exactly as you are. You don't have to make something up that's presentable. <laughs> and as we learn to connect with, with what's the real truth of our experience, it does transform. It does transform. It, it, we have to trust that. With mindfulness, we need the mindfulness. <laughs> that's, that's the key to the transformation as the mindfulness. I'm thinking of last uh, winter when I was working on some variation of this talk. It might have been even a different talk, but one morning I woke up and I was feeling a little bit off. And um, often that's a sign to me that there's some emotion that I'm not wanting to feel or see. So I, I did my meditation. I, I, I've been doing a lot of a certain kind of compassion practice. and. Um, at one point, what I realized then was that I was actually feeling a lot of terror and that it had been triggered by something I'd heard on the radio the day before, some political news. <laughs> and, um, and that it brought up a lot of um, real fear, deep fear. And then I noticed that I was feeling hatred, that there was a lot of hatred happening. So I let the heart have its experience. When I was agitated, when I woke up, it was because I wasn't letting the heart have its experience. So I let the heart have its experience with mindfulness, which means I didn't feed the story. I didn't go on and on. I felt it viscerally in my body, in my heart, upper back, and let the space be there for that emotion to have its life. And what I found over time was that it shifted. And it actually shifted to compassion for me, for us, for all of us. <laughs> How did that happen? That's the power of mindfulness. It's the power of awareness. It seems to somehow have a homing instinct <laughs> to, know, um, to know the way to, to freeing the heart. Now, being with the hatred, feeding the story is a different thing. That would, that would have had a different result. It was, it was a letting go of the story and being with the experience viscerally and allowing it, not resisting it. So that whole exploration was my exploration into resistance and gracefulness. First resisting. And then allowing gracefulness has us allowing, learning how to be with what is arising and changing in our lives. I'm thinking of another time a number of years ago when I was um, traveling. I'd been traveling for 16 days and I was trying to fly home from Portland. I'd been teaching in Washington. I was trying to fly home from Portland, Oregon. And um, 
I got to the airport um, a little late because of a traffic jam, and so I put my um, card in the machine, and it said you can't board the flight. Um, apparently, I was 44 minutes before the flight, and 45 minutes was the cutoff, <laughs> and um, and it was the last flight home to you know across the country. Really tired. I'd been traveling. I was tired. I wanted to go home, and I was. I, I got upset too because I, the flight was full, and I felt like they had kind of bumped me without paying me anything. <laughs> anyway, so I was pretty upset and a little irritated, and so I did what I had to do. But then I was sitting there just like upset, right? So I'm like, hmm, okay. <laughs> then this little voice says over my shoulder, it's like, Rebecca, you're a Dharma teacher. Shouldn't you be doing better than this? <laughs> See, there it is, that spiritual idealism, right, that we should fit into something. And then this other voice was like, well, I'm not. <laughs> and I really I kind of settled into being okay with, with what was going on. I found a little corner of the airport. I just sat there and kind of let it be, let it be. Every once in a while, I'd be like, do we feel equanimous yet? <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> and then after a while, I was like, yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> you know, and then finally it was like, okay, now what do I do? And I called, a, it, the people who dropped me off, it was too far to go back and, you know, stay for the night. So um, I called a student and stayed with a student. It was fine. It worked out fine. But it was really a freeing experience for me because I didn't demand, I didn't put demands on my experience. It was like I was with it as it was. It wasn't pretty, it was a little messy. <laughs> but it, it, you know, I was able to be with that. That's gracefulness. So it doesn't have to look graceful. I mean, it doesn't have to look clean. It can be a little messy. But the gracefulness is the ability to be with that. So we're not talking about passivity also, right? We're talking about a, a lively engagement with the way things are. So this kind of gracefulness or surrender or acceptance, or equanimity, you can call it a lot of different words. It doesn't mean passivity. But it means, yes, first joining with the way things are, and then responding in a way that is helpful. There's a story um, that I found lately that I like from... Um, a Zen teacher named Paul Reps. One day over tea, my friend and mentor, the late Paul Reps, shared the following story of his studies in the Orient. At one point, Reps had traveled to Japan with plans to visit a respected Zen master in Korea. He went to the passport office in Japan to apply for his visa and was politely informed that his request was denied due to the war that had just broken out in Korea. Reb sat down in the waiting area. He had come thousands of miles with the plan to study with his Korean master. He was frustrated and disappointed. What did he do? He practiced what he preached. Reaching into his bag, Reps mindfully pulled out his thermos and poured himself a cup of tea. With a calm and focused mind, he watched the steam rising and dissolving into the air. Steadying, right? Steadying. 
He smelled its fragrance, tasted its tasty, bitter flavor, and enjoyed its warmth and wetness. Finishing his tea, he put his cup back on his thermos, put his thermos in his bag, and pulled out a pen and paper upon which he wrote a haiku poem. Mindfully, he walked back to the clerk behind the counter, bowed and presented him with his poem and his passport. The clerk read it and looked up deeply, and looked up deeply into the quiet strength in Rep's eyes. Smiling, he bowed with respect, picked up Rep's visa, and stamped it for passage to Korea. The haiku read, Drinking a cup of tea, I stopped the war. It's such a lovely story about gracefulness, right? So he joined with the situation, took his time studying, like joining, and then there's this response that was fresh, effective. <laughs> so out of this place of, of steady, graceful heart, we respond, and often we respond much better than if we are responding out of our... Um, our resistance to the way things are. So we see how um, we have a lot of demands on life and a lot of demands on ourselves and a lot of demands on the moment. And we, and we narrow our lives down to kind of the slice of life that conforms with our expectations. So these protections of the heart, the grasping, the aversion, and the delusion, they actually narrow our lives. And there's a way that they barricade our, us within ourselves. <laughs> it, it's, it can be um, dramatic or subtle, but there's a way that, that, that actually this is how we form this separate self. This is how we separate ourselves from life. And so as we start to soften the demand, soften the hardness, the rigidity, the resistance. Um, we start to open to a greater um, sense of the vastness and the wildness of, and the vividness of life. We actually find that we start to come more um, connected to life. And life becomes, um, it actually gets wilder in my experience because we haven't damped it down. <laughs> we haven't shoved it into something that we can manage. It gets wilder and um, vaster and in a way more beautiful. Well, it gets broader, so it, get, it not only gets more beautiful, but it also holds more suffering because it, 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 it widens. 
And so what we do and what we're doing is we're stretching this capacity of the heart and mind to be alive. We become more alive. And as we do this, too, we start to not um, put our happiness sometime in the future, something that we're going to get to someday. Which is kind of our hope, right? That someday we're going to get it. <laughs> but, but we start to, to put that um, energy into now recognizing that now is the only time we're going to get it. So you could say we stop postponing our happiness for some time when, when we get everything right and perfect and the way it, sh- it should be, we think. And it's like, oh, we can engage what we engage with now. I remember um, learning this on my first long retreat. I was young, I was 24, and um, at one point in the retreat, I got obsessed with what was going to make me happy the rest of my life. That was the question that kept going through my mind. And uh, so I just kept trying on different scenarios. I was like, okay, I'm kind of an introvert, so one scenario was I'm going to get a little cabin in the woods, and I'm just going to do a lot of retreat and meditate, and then I'm going to be happy. And then, and then I was like, oh, but I might get a little lonely, right? So then I was like, oh, I'll find a spiritual community. I'll live in a community. That'll really work for me. And I'm like, oh, but other people drive me crazy, so that might not work. And then I was like, well, I have some kids, and I'll raise a family. And then I'm like, oh, so much responsibility. <laughs> and I kept going through these scenarios. This went on for a month. It was just like, the under, underlying story of everything was just over and over again, what's going to make me, what's going to make me happy? And it kept coming up, just wasn't going to work, over and over again. And it was this month where I, I lots of terror, lots of fear, just fear because I kept feeling like I wasn't, gonna, I wasn't finding it. it. It was kept slipping away. There was... Um, it, it wasn't working that I could find this answer to this question. And um, finally, after about a month of this, I went into an interview with my teacher, Sharon. I was, Sharon was very kind. She was seeing me every day at that point. So I went into her and I said, it looks like there's nothing out there that's going to make me permanently happy. And she said, yep. (laughs) You finally got it. (laughs) And I said, oh, so then I guess the only only answer is like now. Like to, that now is the only place I can really look for the answer to that. She's like, yep. And in that afternoon, all the fear left. 
And the fear was because I was looking in the wrong place, right? But once I, like, surrendered, right, I was just like, it's like I gave up on the question, right? In some ways, in a a positive way, I I surrendered. And um, then I was, there was peace, lots of peace. It all got simpler in some ways. I didn't have to peg down the world in some way that was going to do it. Because we can't peg down the world, right? We've all tried. I mean, we can have some nice circumstances for a while, and that's great. Let's do it. But, but it all changes. Adyashanti said, the role of spiritual practice is basically to exhaust the seeker. If the practice does what it's supposed to do, it exhausts our energy for seeking, and then reality has a chance to present itself. <laughs> Surrender is beautiful. It's, it's um, rest. Rest is what we're really looking for. That's what we want. Rest or peace. Peace is delicious in a quiet kind of way. It's not dramatic, but it answers the yearning in our hearts. We should enjoy it when it arises. That's, it's good to acclimate towards it, not to miss it when it arises. You might have a few moments this weekend. I'm not being funny, facetious. <laughs> Enjoy those moments. <laughs> That's the other thing I learned is like, you know, we, we think we want to go for like long stretches of peace. Maybe we should just enjoy the moments of it. And um, it builds over time on its own. It builds through mindfulness, mindfulness of, of, of peace which is related to gracefulness, right? They're very related. Mindfulness of it strengthens it, and so we don't want to miss it when it happens. Miss it maybe looking for something more exciting. So we start to also notice the experience of gracefulness when it is present. What does that feel like? And it may feel like um, ease or peace flexibility, spaciousness, kindness, joy, lack of demands. Yeah, so that shows us the potential of our hearts to be graceful in this world that's so wild and alive and vibrant and unpredictable. couple of Winnie the Pooh Winnie the Pooh quotes. Winnie the Pooh's good at gracefulness. 
What day is it? asked Winnie the Pooh. It's today, squeaked Piglet. My favorite day, said Pooh. <laughs> it's snowing still, said Eeyore gloomily. So it is, and freezing. Is it? Yes, said Eeyore. However, he said, brightening up a little bit, we haven't had an earthquake lately. <laughs> There's um, one meditator told me a story. I, can't, I don't think I brought it with me, but I think I remember it too. She was out with her daughter, and um, her daughter was maybe four years old, and uh, they went to get like a gumball out of a machine, and and the mother said to her daughter, well, um, which color do you want? Or which color do you hope you get? And she goes, I want the one that I get. <laughs> That's gracefulness. <laughs> I didn't go in order, so I'm going to see if there's anything here that I missed that I want to... When I said that the world is, is kind of wilder and more vibrant, one teacher, I think it was Stephen Batchelor, calls this re-enchantment, mm -hmm. that the world um, becomes more magical, you could say, because it's not um, squashed and crushed by our demands. And the narrowness of, of, our, of aversion or, or delusion or craving And sometimes we really kind of notice this in moments where the mind is open and we see things in a new way or things stand out in their vibrancy. Last uh, year when I was working on this talk or some version of it, remember I was sitting at the um, marsh near my house. I like to hang out in the woods a lot and sit near marshes and things like that. And, um, and it, was, it was snowy, snowy, and I had the thought, look at the white snow. And um, then I was like, I shifted into a kind of more open place of real, um, really connecting, because back to that connecting, and I saw, oh, it wasn't white. It was mauve and teal and gray, and it was so beautiful. And so I saw how, like, my ideas, right, kind of made it conform, you could say, to my expectations. But when there's that real connection that can come when the heart is graceful, it was like, oh, it's beautiful. Then I realized it's not really any color, it's just how it, it presented in that moment. Changes when the light changes, right? That's kind of how life is. Presenting in, in kind of vibrant displays moment after moment.
maybe that's good for today. Except there's one other quote I want to share with you. Maybe a couple. <laughs> Here's an Ajahn Chah story, which reminds me of gracefulness. This is from Ajahn Brahm's book, Who Ordered This Truckload of Dung. <laughs> He's talking about when he was a monk in Thailand. In my second year as a monk in Northeast Thailand, I came down with scrub typhus. The fever was so strong that I was admitted to the monk's ward in the regional hospital at Ubon. In those days, in the mid-1970s, Ubon was a remote backwater of a very poor country. Feeling weak and afflicted, with a drip in my arm, I noticed the male nurse leave his station at 6 p.m. Half an hour later, the replacement nurse had yet to arrive, so I asked the monk in the next bed if he would alert somebody in charge that the night nurse hadn't come. I was quickly told that in the monk's ward, there's never a night nurse. If you take a turn for the worse during the night, that's just unlucky karma. And so he's, he goes on about kind of how, how he's given injections and um, how, how intense the whole thing was. And um, then he says, I was in pain, I was weak, and I had never felt so miserable in my life. Then one afternoon, Ajahn Jah came into the monk's ward to visit me, to visit me. I felt so flattered and impressed. For those of you who don't know, Ajahn Chah was a very famous Thai forest master. I was uplifted. I felt great until Ajahn Chah opened his mouth. What he said, I later found out he told many sick monks whom he visited in the hospital. He told me, you'll either get better or you'll die. <laughs> then he went away. <laughs> My elation was shattered. My joy at the visit vanished. The worst thing was that you couldn't fault Ajahn Chah. What he said was the absolute <laughs> truth. I'd get better or I'd die. Either way, the discomfort of the sickness would not last. Surprisingly, that was very reassuring. And as it happened, I got better instead of dying. There's <laughs> a kind of gracefulness. and it, There's not tact, but there's... <laughs> gracefulness in Ajahn Chah's response of connecting fully with the truth of that moment. And he was trying to help Ajahn Brahm let go, surrender. This is the truth of the moment. He was, he was a very um, demanding teacher. He didn't pull his punches to make his students feel better. And there's somebody named John Bennett. I don't know who he is, but I like this quote from him. You come to see that suffering is required, and you no more want to avoid it than you want to avoid putting your next foot on the ground when you're walking. In the spiritual path, joy and sorrow follow one another like two feet, and you come to a point of not minding which foot is on the ground. You realize, on the contrary, that it is extremely uncomfortable hopping all the time on the joy foot. That's gracefulness.
So, for example, then, as I was talking at 2 o'clock, when other sensations in the body come up, either pleasant or unpleasant, I addressed unpleasant at 2 o'clock because that's more common on a, a first day of a weekend. We, we move towards it, right? As I said, we get interested in um, connecting with what's really happening. And this is also interesting because we have kind of the level of concept, like I had the level of concept about the snow, and then we have the level of what's really happening, which is different than the concept. So this connecting, so a knee pain might be um, burning, or aching, or stabbing. <laughs> so we get close, and then we see that what seems like something solid maybe isn't so solid. It's moving and changing. So we're really connecting with reality moment by moment, the reality of our experience. And then it's like, how are we relating to that knee pain? Is there resistance? Probably. It's not bad. But so is there like, oh, I hate it. What is that like to hate the knee pain? What happens when we notice that? Is there the possibility for a second or two of just connecting with the knee pain as it is? We explore that. Probably not going to be more than a second or two, to be honest, that it's going to last. Maybe if you're, if you're, been practicing longer, or you have a lot of concentration, it might be longer. But, but, but what, we're, what we're doing is increasing this capacity to hold what's unpleasant without having to argue with it, or struggle. And when there's pleasant experiences in the body, if they call our attention, we can be with them. Same way. What's it feel like? What's it, there's a, the idea, what's it feel like? Maybe there's a sense of lightness in the body, so we can be with that. And then we notice what's the relationship. Is there any stress in that experience? The stress being, perhaps we notice it like the thought, how can I make this stay? How long is this going to last? I don't want this to end. That's stress. That's tension, right? That's craving, clinging, grasping, whatever word you want to use. So we notice that. We notice, oh, what's that like? Can we just be with it as it is without that stress? We check it out. Check it out. So, so we're back to resistance and gracefulness. We notice if there's resistance. We see if there's some capacity to hold what's arising. And we let mindfulness do the work. So again, we're not trying to demand that things be a different way. We just, we're checking it out. We're letting mindfulness check it out. So maybe it's an unpleasant sound. <laughs> so there, there's a sound and then there's, there's the I hate this sound. Resistance, right? And then it's like, oh, hearing. What's it like to actually just rest with this sound? Can I do that? Maybe not. Maybe yes. We explore. So 
so great that you guys have the time to do this. We have the, the situation here where we're taken care of so that we can explore. Now we must end because it's almost dinner time. Oh, dinner's great for exploring um, uh, resistance and acceptance. So, tasting, tasting, tasting. If it's pleasant, what happens? Oh, I want more. <laughs> the stress. And then it's like what it's going back to just the tasting, tasting. Or if it's unpleasant, it's like, what's it like to be with that as it is? Though sometimes unpleasant food means you shouldn't eat it, right? So you have to bring in wisdom too. <laughs> no, really. I mean, sometimes that's what that's what that's that. Yeah. So 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 this the surrender has to have some intelligence with it too, and taking care of ourselves. So like yeah, with the knee pain, at a certain point you should move. And if your knee pain is um, increasing and it's not going away when you stand up, you should sit in a different way. So 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 we bring intelligence into the process also taking care of ourselves. So we have this combination of steadiness and, and gracefulness. So steadiness at times we're going to need to really just come back to the anchor and then simplicity. But then when we have the energy and interest, we can explore the other events that arise and, and, and find where is there stress or tension and how does that open up so there's a they're, they're, they work together in tandem it's a great combination let's just sit together for a couple of minutes and then we'll go have our dinner Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.